Well, college football is kicking off this week, and we all love it when our team makes big plays, all right? Let me show you a play up here you might remember. I, um, hold on, hold on, hold on. I cannot believe I showed that. I will be on the front row at the end of services today, okay? Uh, let's be a little even. Let's watch this other clip, okay? Okay. Well, at least we're, at least we're even here. We love to watch big plays when it's our team, right? But, I, but what I believe would be even more exciting, would be better, is to make big plays. Now, we've got a lot of athletes in here today, and some of you have experienced that, where you made that clutch play. I, I would have to say I've never experienced that. My glorious moment in sports was I did win the ping pong tournament at the men's retreat about five years ago, okay? I mean, that, that, was, that was pretty, pretty awesome. But I'm going to tell you, we've been talking to the church that we don't want to be an average church. We want to play big. And so this week, I've been trying to figure out what that means. And so I've been asking all of our coaches, we have lots of coaches in the audience today, how would they define playing big? Let me read what they said. I love this from one of our ladies' coaches. Playing bigs mean playing outside your talent level. It's when she goes beyond the court and sees the game from a different perspective. When it's no longer a focus on her, but on the team and how she can make a teammate better or shine. I love this one. It's that next level intensity, passion, and discipline. He's accepted a higher role as a teammate, playing on a different level than everyone else. I love this one. Playing big is doing more than expected in practice so when the moment comes, you play above your head because you worked and were ready for that moment. Playing big means to play beyond expectations. It occurs when the challenge is great and there is a greater focus. Focus is going to be one of the themes of our message today. Playing big is when a player is playing for his brothers on that team and not just for himself and to play courageously in the face of adversity. Playing big's not easy. Playing big means showing up every day, preparing to to be ready to perform your best when your best is needed. It's that crucial moment you prepared for. When a player plays big, the other team hates to play against them. This is one of our Christian coaches. They feel like that one player is beating them, and they can't stop it. This is probably my favorite. It's someone who, despite what's going on against them, does whatever it takes to make something happen. They always find a way to beat the odds, grind through adversity, even when the chips are stacked against them. And then a blast from the past, Jim Sanderson. Getting more done than it would appear that a player could do. That person brings it all to the court. I love that. And I love this idea of playing big. But I love it even more when we talk about today of playing big for God. I mean, those are games that really don't mean anything, sorry, in the long run. But today we're going to talk about from Jesus, what does it mean to play big for him? In fact, Jesus made this rather simple. One day a man was trying to trick him and ask, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus put it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. 
What's Jesus saying? Is to play big for God is to have a great focus. It's to focus on just two things. Now, Jesus is in a day where religion has really weighed people down, where they've come up with so many rules and so many regulations and so many things you got to do that the average person is just giving up. Isaiah the prophet says, you keep telling people to do this and do this. You keep making up rules and rules. But here's the deal. You're keeping these rules, but your heart's far from me. And so Jesus walks in this environment, environment where they've taken the simplicity of the Ten Commandments and made it 612 commandments. And so he blows this guy's mind on the day. He says, let me tell you guys what really counts, what really is plain big is loving God and loving people. It's just that simple. So today we want to focus on these two things. Because to play big, you must keep it simple. I think a lot of us are quitting. There's a lot of people not in here today because at one time, religion became overwhelming. And there were so many rules, they couldn't keep it perfectly, so they just gave up. Jesus said, I want to give you some hope. I want you to keep it simple. You know, even athletic teams sometimes forget how simple it ought to be. One of the legendary coaches in the NFL, Vince Lombardi, had some rough seasons. In 1958, he lost 11 games. In the beginning of 1959, the Packers had lost their first five games. And so he brought the whole team together. He's just holding a football. And he says to his team, gentlemen, this is a football. And he started from there. One of the players said, coach, could you slow down? We're not quite that fast. Today, Jesus says, this is what a follower of God looks like. What are you saying, coach? Loving God and loving people. Now, we're studying the book of Luke here at Landmark, and we go to Luke chapter 10, where Luke has paired two stories that relate to the two great commandments. And these are awesome stories. I want you just to get in the text Get on your phone, watch on the screen, get in your Bible, and just enjoy what Jesus says here. Luke chapter 25, they're trying to trap him again. Verse 25, Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? So Jesus turns the question back on this guy, and you need to circle this because the guy gets this one right. He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've acted, answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. Now here's the problem. But this man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This guy's dealing with some guilt because he's trying to figure out who the neighbor is. And what he wants to do is he wants Jesus to agree with him and limit who his neighbor is. His neighbor is someone who looks like him, believes like him, acts like him. And, and, and so Jesus is going to address this with one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a dangerous road. Sea level drops quickly. It's a winding road. There are caves where robbers would hide. Literally, in Jesus' day, it was known as the bloody road because so many people were killed on it. So this guy is walking down this road by himself, 
and he's attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Not a good diagnosis. A priest, a priest, a priest, had to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. The most spiritual guy just sort of walks around. And then his assistant, the Levite, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. And then Jesus drops a bomb. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denenri and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you have. Here's this Samaritan. This guy is politically, religiously, and ethically, I mean, excuse me, ethnically an outsider. I mean, he just, nobody likes Samaritans. And yet Jesus says, here's the guy that went out of his way to love his neighbor. And then Jesus turns back to that expert and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? I imagine a hesitation. He doesn't want to answer the question. Then the man finally says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He cannot even bring himself to call the man a Samaritan. It's so offensive. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Learn from this man. So we see here the second command obeyed by this Samaritan. This unexpected hero. Now, I, wanna, I think we have misnamed him through the years. We always call this the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Nobody in Jesus' day would have called him the Good Samaritan. He's the Bad Samaritan. You see, the, the, the point of the message is the most unlikely person stands up and helps. The shock to the Jew is this half-breed, religiously wrong man is the one who steps up. And so when we say Good Samaritan, we take the punch out of the story. We're telling this story today. We might talk about someone getting lost in a bad part of inner city, and it's the drug lord that steps up and helps them, not the Christian who walked by. Or in our political climate, Jesus would probably drop this bomb. There was a man in trouble on the side of the road, and all these good people passed by, and an illegal immigrant stopped and helped him. You see, Jesus wants this to make us uncomfortable because Jesus wants us to know what it really means to love people. It's to serve people. It's to take care of their needs. Now, after that story, Luke attaches another story. Now, a little bit of teaching here. Um, The Bible is not always in chronological order. You read the gospel, sometimes we call them a biography. That's not really a good description. It's not like it, it goes straight through. An author in this day is like a preacher. He's got a lot of liberty, all right? And so he can put two stories together to make a point. So he's made this point about loving people. But he doesn't want them to forget the number one command. And so he tells this following really, really, really cool story. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way... He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. 
Now listen, Jesus is on his way to the cross. In six months, he'll be dead. And he's wanting to go and be with people who loved him. So he drops in this home of his friends. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Stop there at that period. Can you imagine? You know, I I grew up with the sweetest, most wonderful southern mother. And we loved her. She was so gentle, so sweet, so loving, hardly ever disciplined us. You know, it's always dad who did that. But she turned into an absolute monster when company was coming, all right? Because she wanted everything perfect, all the china out, everything in place. And that's Martha here. Can you imagine the pressure of entertaining Jesus at your home? Martha feels it. And she goes back to the kitchen, and she's getting it all ready. She wants to put a really nice meal and nice china on the table. And and lo and behold, Mary's in the den just shooting the breeze with Jesus. Now, if you're Martha, what are you thinking? Oh, I'm sure, you know, at the beginning, you know, she's starting, you know, to, to stir the cornbread. She was a southerner. She's stirring the cornbread, you know. She's starting to get, you know, get the meat in the oven. And, and she keeps thinking, well, certainly Mary's about to come. I mean, any moment, I mean, she sees I'm the one back here working. I mean, uh, when is Mary getting here? I mean, this is going on for a long time. Can they not just stop for a moment and help me? And then and, and finally she gets even mad at Jesus. Does Jesus, does he not care that I'm doing all the work? And so that's the exact question that Martha comes and asks Jesus. She came to him and asked, I love this, Lord, don't you care? How many people ever ask Jesus if he cares? That's not a nice question. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Would you tell her to help me? Guys, in the original language here, the way this is worded, she absolutely expects Jesus to be on her side. Absolutely. She's expecting a yes answer. Mary, get off your tail and get in the kitchen and help her. Can't you see what's going on? No, 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 no. no. That's not what what Jesus says. Look at verse 41. Martha, Martha. Now, for years, I've always said at this point, you know you're in trouble when Jesus says your name twice. But that's really not the right reading. Uh, Quite a few times in the Gospels, Jesus double says names. And every time it's compassion. He weeps over Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's so sad that Peter's about to fall. Simon, Simon. He meets Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul. So when Jesus says Martha, Martha here, he's not saying, I am so sick of you, Martha. You just got it wrong here. What he's saying is, Martha, I'm so sad that you're not experiencing what you could be experiencing. And then listen to his answer. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset, literally uptight, about many things. But few things are needed. You notice the contracts? Martha is worried about many things. You'll see here in a moment, Mary has chosen the one thing. But few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What an amazing story. You say, okay, buddy, what is Martha's problem? Can I ask you this? Is Martha doing some kind of vile sin? Is she back in the kitchen smoking dope? I don't read that in the text anyway. Oh, what's her problem? She's just distracted by bad priorities. Well, what's Mary's? What's Mary doing that's so wonderful that Jesus commends it as being actually eternal? 
She's spending time with Jesus. She's loving God. How do you love God? Do you love God by clearing your calendar to spend time with him? How do you prove to someone you love him? You spend time with him. You develop a friendship here. So let's boil it back down again. Let's keep it simple. How do you play big for God? Jesus tells us, love God and love people. Let me say this to all of us. We can get everything else right, and if we don't get this right, we've failed. I'm talking to some college students here today. You can pass all your grades, make great friends, meet your mate, play big in your sport, and if you don't love God and love people, you've failed. And let me say this. Your teachers won't be proud of this. You could fail all of this over here. And if you love God and you love people, you've been an absolute success in life. It's just that important. So, let me say this to you guys. What is church all about? Because sometimes church is the place it gets complicated. Sometimes many of us have been run away from churches that made it seem impossible that we could ever please God. Let me tell you, a church that's obedient to Jesus has two missions. It's to teach people how to love God, and to love people. And if we're not doing that, my friends, we are failing. Many of us in at Landmark took a survey a few months ago called the Reveal Survey. And it was a study of our church and where we are spiritually and, and what steps we need to take to go further. And I shared that message last week and challenged us. But here's something you might have picked up on. Beneath that Reveal Survey, what it's really trying to find a way to measure is Is our church helping you love God better and love people better? Now, I pushed pretty hard last Sunday because I think those two things are big time. And I actually got an anonymous letter. You know, I'm I'm sorry that I've come across that you got to write me an anonymous letter. I hope I'm more approachable than that. But basically in this letter, what someone said to me is, buddy, you just put us on a guilt trip last Sunday, and it seems to me all you're interested in is a mega church. And let me say this. Guys, whether we're a mega church or not, I really don't care. But what I do want us to be is a church that keeps the mega commandments. That's what we're talking about, the great commandments. And here's what I believe, guys. Becoming a large church is not a bad thing. I mean, the first church was 3,000. It was a mega church overnight. And here's what I believe. If we keep the great commandments, the other stuff's going to follow That's not our goal. Our goal is to say, are you walking out of this building and loving God well? Are you loving people well? That's the goal. That's the goal of our church. And that's the goal of our campus ministry is for us to train students, encourage students to love God and to love people. Nathan puts that over everything they put out. I love that. In fact, I want to talk to a couple of college students right now. I want to call up Jonathan and Hope if they would join me on the stage. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to love God and to love people and how we help people to do that. Hope you come over here and you sit in the middle. Jonathan, you get over there. Love these two guys. Uh, Jonathan is um, a junior in majoring in criminal justice. He is from Mexico. Hope is from much further. She's from Tallahassee, Alabama. And um, she is actually a senior uh, in history education. So 
before we get into these, these key questions, here's what I'd like you guys. Would you tell people sort of your spiritual background before you came to campus ministry? Hope you'll start. Okay. Um, I didn't really have a spiritual background. I grew up like knowing that there was a God, but I didn't love God. We didn't go to church, my family. And it wasn't until about my ninth grade year of high school that I started really wanting to develop a relationship with him. I started calling myself a Christian, but I really wasn't. I said I loved Jesus, but I didn't do anything to show that. I just, but it wasn't until freshman year of college when I met friends who challenged me and who really encouraged me to develop a relationship with him that I can truly say that I fell in love with God. Jamie, I love sort of the transition I hear you taking from being so religious to developing this relationship we're talking about. And how about you, Jonathan? What was your spiritual background? Well, I grew up in, a, I guess you can say, a Catholic family. Uh, they never really went to church or anything. So I, I always thought the idea of God was something fake. It was just something to keep us on the line, you know. I wasn't against it. I just never believed in it. And the fact that I run away, that I left home so, so young. Well, what age were you? Uh, 14, when I ran away from home. That didn't help because I was on my own the whole time, you know, and I was just trying to do things on my own, and it wasn't until, I guess, I didn't find another way. I tried every single way of the world, and nothing worked, and just one time, I just, you know, got on my knees, and I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this by myself, and I know everyone knows Marco in here, so just one time, I was wearing a shirt that I said, I play for him without knowing the meaning, and he invited me here, and I guess I gave my life to the Lord like a year and a half ago. It's been a beautiful thing. Tell everybody, I, I know you're a criminal justice major. You have a really good line about being a criminal justice major. I'm trying to be on the other side of the law for one time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, let's get to the core of our message here. How has campus ministry helped you learn how to love God? I guess the way I see it is, you know, uh, at some point in our lives, we just run out of energy, you know, and for me, going to, you know, a small group, coming to church is like, it's like a phone charger, you know, like I get battery again, and then I can go out of the world and love people, because bottom line, it's, it's about loving people, you know, I could care less, I hate the word religion, you know, it creates separation, and if you've ever been in that separation, if you've ever been separated by your skin color or whatever you come from, your accent, is the worst, is one of the worst feelings ever, so the way I see it is just, following Christ and being surrounded by brothers that are striving to become a better person in every single way, you know, so. Amen. And Hope, how about you? How's this help you learn to love God? Going on with the love thing, like, the first thing I noticed in the campus ministry is just the love that they had for everybody. Like, right away, I felt at home. I didn't have that at the other church I had. I always felt like an outsider, but here, I was just included right from the beginning. People who I didn't even know would message me like, hey, you want to come? I'm like, no, but they kept, you know, going on, and they showed me that love, and I wanted to give that love back, and it was through the ministry that I learned that the love that they were giving me really came from Jesus, and so just growing my relationship with him has helped me to give more love to others. Hope, I think you hit, hit it on the head. Let's do remember the greatest commandment is to love God. The loving people flows out of the greatest commandments, Okay. And so, it, and, and the Bible says it's automatic that it will. But I love the way you put that. Now, Jonathan, anything you want to add about loving how campus ministries helped you to love people and what was an experience that really helped you? Well, 
the one thing I always think about is when we went down to Texas on that mission trip, you know, after the hurricane, or, uh, and that we helped this guy, Todd, and not and nothing else in my life has given me that, you know, I guess you can say that joy, because I think there's a difference between happiness and joy, that joy of just seeing someone so happy and so grateful, you know. Uh, and from there, my perspective of life started changing, you know, like just do things for people, not because— they deserve it. Maybe they don't deserve it, but we're called to do that, you know. It's not to impress people, but because I've already been impressed by my Father in heaven. So I think it's just doing things in faith and in the name of Christ, not in our name. So. Yeah. Thank you for the way you put that, because that, that brings us to, to where we're about to go. And if you're our guest here, we have tables all around the building, and, and we go to take a communion together. And, and I like the way you put that, Jonathan, is... You know what? They don't deserve it. But the truth is, we don't deserve what we've gotten. So that should make it easier for us to love people like that, right? So here's what I'd like to ask both of you, and we'll start with you, Hope. How does the cross motivate you to love God and love people? Because I think this is the most motivational moment in our service. How does the cross motivate you to love God and love people? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so when I look at the cross, like, I'm going to cry probably. I just see the sacrifice that, like, Jesus made for us. You know, he gave everything that he had for us. He came down from heaven. He gave his life. And so when I just look at that cross, I just see motivation to want to give back, to sacrifice back. I am nothing, and I have nothing compared to what Christ has given me. So it should be no problem for me to want to give back to him. Amen. Jonathan, how does this moment motivate you? <laughs> the way I see it is, you know, and I've talked this with you, buddy. It's like I shouldn't even have been sitting here, you know. I should be either back in prison or dead. And, you know, you and I talk about this. So the fact that I'm standing in here and, you know, just sharing about what God has done with my life and his love for me, you know, that reminds me of, of the cross because the purpose of the cross is, you know, Christ dying on the cross, so sin could no longer separate us from God's love. So that always reminds me of that, that no matter what you do, God knows the true intentions of your heart, and you're forgiven no matter what, you know, because of his, not because we deserve it, like you said, but because that's just our God. It's Amen. a God of love. Let me just say, I love hearing you guys talk, because some of us have been in this a long time. We do overcomplicate it, and sometimes we forget just the simple fact that, man, he loves us. And we just want to love him back and love people in his name. It's just that simple. And so, Jonathan, before we go to the table, would you, you pray over communion? Absolutely. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for just giving us a blessing to gather together in your name, Father, and that for your love and your grace, Father, even though we don't deserve it, you still give us to us, Father, and that's just amazing. That's the God that you are. Father, today I pray that, that you bless this bread and this wine, Father, that just that we don't forget the true meaning behind it, that is Christ dying on the cross for us so we could be forgiven for his blood, Father. And it's in his name that I pray all of this. Amen. What a great time we've had together today. I want to close out. And what I need you to do, whether you've been taking notes or not, I need everybody to get your lifelines out just for a moment. We're going to do an exercise together. Uh, just open up to the message outline. There's two boxes, rectangles, toward the bottom of the outline. And I, I want you to do an exercise with me in just a moment. We've been saying so far that Jesus has called us to focus on two things. I want to close out by asking you to stretch yourself in one thing. Because to play big, 
you must excel in both. We, we, we want to be people who, who love God and love people. And yet sometimes one of those doesn't come as natural as the other. So here's our exercise. Take your pen out. There ought to be one in front of you. On that left blank, I want you to write your name in cursive. Just write your name. This is very simple, nothing complicated. Okay. Write your name in cursive. Now what I'm going to ask you to do is change hands and write your name in cursive. Try that one. Is this easy? Man, mine looks awful. My first looked awful anyway, but the second looks really, really bad. Now, now what, what's the problem? It, it, it's, it's the part that's not natural. You know, when you, you do your dominant hand, it just comes easy. But every one of us, some of us have a right dominant hand, some of us a left, but the other seems really unnatural. And what I want you to understand is we're talking about these things. For most of us, because of our wiring and personality, one of these things is more dominant. For, for some of you, to love God is, is the easy one, and to love people is the, the hard one. For some of you, you're just naturally very reflective. You love just thinking and meditating. For some of you, you're action-oriented. Don't tell me to go reflect. Tell me what to do. For, for some of you, you love solitude. A great day for you is to sit in a corner with a book all day and read it. For some of us, that would drive us nuts. Let me go do something. And that's why I think Luke was so wise to put these two stories together. Because the first story ends with, you need to get out there and do it. The second story says, you need to slow down and spend time with God. You need both. Now, here's what I ask you. and You don't have to answer this out loud. But which of those is more natural to you? Some of us, it's going to be that solitude time alone with God. Some of us, we won't be around people 24 hours a day. Now, here's the challenge. The challenge is each of us has to stretch ourselves in the other area. Because if you love solitude, many of you these last few weeks, and we've really been pushing small groups, you've had to stretch yourself to walk in that living room. You're scared to death to sit in that circle because that's unnatural. But you needed to stretch because if you love God, you're going to love people. And for the rest of us, many of us, we love walking in that living room. We love being with people, but I struggle to be alone with God. And i got to do both, so i got to stretch myself in that. So let me ask you, where do you need to stretch yourself? That's your assignment this week. Go stretch yourself in the area that you're a little weaker in. Now, here's going to be your biggest obstacle. It was Martha's. It's distractions. Uh, Martha was so distracted by what had to be done. And so many of us, we're just so much like Martha. We love a a plate that's full. I love a to-do list that I can mark off. I am so distracted by, like Jesus said, by so many things that I neglect the one thing that matters. And so I can just warn you that Satan's going to work on you through distractions. Here's the deal, guys. If Satan can't get you to rebel against God and go sin, he's just going to distract you. In fact, I read this quotation this week. I thought it was so good. If Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Anybody can relate to that? If he can't make you bad, he will make you so busy that you neglect God. And so as you walk out of here, you might be all convicted by what we've said, but as soon as you walk up these doors, life is going to distract you. 
And maybe you don't go serve that person down at BTW school. Or maybe you don't get involved in Halcyon. Or you don't just spend quietness with God. Now here's the good news. Here's the good news of this message. The good news is you choose. Say that with me. The good news is you choose. Say it together. The good news is you choose. That, that's what it said about Mary. Mary, lazy Mary, has chosen what is better. And just like our coaches said earlier, it's the choices you make every day that, that are going to lead you to that moment where you're going to be able to play big for God. I saw an interview with the NBA star Kobe Bryant the other day, and they were talking about his incredible career. They even mentioned the game where he, he scored 70 points. I love what Kobe said. He says, what people don't see is that I practiced eight hours a day, 365 days a year to play big. And guys, what's going to be seen behind the scenes is you being focused on being a part of a church. If you're a college student, man, we would love to have you here at Landmark. You need to find you a great church because that's where we learn these things. You need to find yourself a great small group where you rub each other the right way. You need to discipline yourself to, to wake up early enough to have that time with God. And you can choose that. Now, here's what I want to say to you. And here's what I'm looking for today. The same thing from these stories. The person that's going to walk out of here and play big may be the most unlikely person in our audience. The heroes in our stories was the bad Samaritan and the lazy Mary. And today, you may go, yeah, man, I know Swindle's going to play big, man. I, Zane Kirkland, man, he, he always plays big. Jeff Arrington, man, he's, he, I, I've been, no, 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 I'm not asking you about those guys. I'm asking you, could you play big? You see, it might be the most unlikely person. Maybe you've been marked off by other people. Let me just be really blunt here. I know we've got a lot of athletes from Faulkner here. And I know from talking to you, sometimes you feel ostracized on campus. It's like you got all the athletes and you got all the other people, you know, and, 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 and they're, they're expecting these people to play big. These folks grew up in church all their life. And, and sometimes they're looking at you like, you're, you're a problem. And let me tell you, that's not how God looks at you. God believes you may be the person who plays biggest on that campus than anybody else. And don't let Satan tell you anything else. Play big. Don't let your past destroy you. Don't let your worries about the future distract you. You choose to play big. And playing big is pretty simple. About 25 years ago, I was riding down the road with a preacher friend of mine. He's quite provocative, and I think he was trying to provoke me, shake me up a little bit, and we were talking about different things, and all of a sudden in the conversation, he said, buddy, I'm going to tell you what I think is going to happen on the day of judgment. Oh, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. And then he said, he said, here's what I believe is going to happen when you come before God. He's going to ask you two questions. Did you love God, and did you love people? And at that moment in my life, I was a little bit rebellious toward that. It can't be that simple. You really? Uh, that's all he's going to really care, that you love God and love people. But the more I dive into Scripture and the more I watch Jesus, I think the man was right. Do you love God and love people? Everything else will flow from that. And so today, if you're struggling to love God and you've, you, you've 
you've drifted from him, you've been distracted, or if, you, or if you're struggling where most of us do, to love people. And you need, before we leave here, one thing we love to do as a church is we love to pray for each other, and we're not afraid to show our weaknesses. So if today you need to show up on this front row and say, man, I'm just doing a lousy job loving the people around me, doing a lousy job loving my teammates, lousy job loving my roommate. Or maybe today's the day that you go, you know what? This is the only thing that's going to bring meaning to my life, and I am ready to follow Jesus. And, And today, could I become one of his followers and leave this place born again. If you need to respond to this message publicly, don't hesitate. Come right now while we all stand and sing.